Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Hees. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and we have another great episode for you today. We are talking pollinators, guys, bees, butterflies, and what goes along with their habitat. We have Elsa Gallagher on here. She is from the Bee and Butterfly Habitat Fund, and we get into some pretty great discussions on all things pollinator habitat. So a little bit different episode, you know, than, than what we're used to, but it's very, very interesting to say the least. Uh, a couple of things we cover here. We start out with finding out who Elsa is, what the Bee and Butterfly Habitat Fund actually is, what they do. We talk about why pollinators matter, how this can affect your property, and you know what are the benefits to having some of these pollinator mixes on your property. Uh, we talk about their Seed and Legacy Program. This is a program where you can get free seed from the, the Habitat Fund here for your property. So we talk about how you can qualify for that free seed. How big of a pl- spot do you need? What states qualify for this program here? And then we also get into, you know, what type of seed mixes are there? You know, there's a, there's a butterfly-specific one. There's a bee-specific one here. We talk about all this stuff. So be sure to hang around for the whole thing here because it is a good one, guys. I'd like to uh, thank Stony Creek Outdoors and Realty for their partnership in this podcast here. Chad Thalen has been on the show before, and also we did our Facebook Live trivia with Chad from Stony Creek, and I'm on his website right now, and there are a bunch of beautiful Michigan real estate listings for recreational property on there. Uh, anywhere from 
southern Michigan up to northern Michigan. A lot of central Michigan. I see like 14, 15 properties on here. So be sure to check out Chad's website, stonycreekoutdoors.com, and you'll find all the real estate on there. He has some habitat services he offers. You can list your farm on there if you're thinking about selling. It's just a, a nice website. Chad's a good guy, and uh, we're happy to be partnered up with Stony Creek Outdoor Properties and, and Stony Creek Realty. So, once again, that's stonycreekoutdoors.com. And I want to thank uh, the rest of our partners here. Have Killer Food Plots, 5-2 Outdoors, The Habitat Hook, Packer Max Cult of Packers, Huntwise, and Michigan Whitetail Pursuit. Thank you guys for your support in the podcast. Now, if anybody is new to the podcast, you can find all of our information at habitatpodcast.com. All the episodes are up there. All of our gear is on there. Our land plan services, all that information is listed on the website. You can also listen to us wherever you can find a podcast. So we should be on all the apps, the Stitcher Radio, um, Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Pandora, all those, we should, we should be on there. Just look up Habitat Podcast, and, and if you don't mind, leave us a great review. It always helps us. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for tuning in once again. Let's get Elsa here on the line. All right, everyone. We are back. Another episode of the Habitat Podcast. I have our co-host, Brian, on the line, and a special guest tonight. We have Elsa from the Bee and Butterfly Habitat Fund. How are you doing tonight, Elsa? Doing great. How Doing well. Yeah, I'm doing well. How are you, Brian? Doing good. Yeah, well, hey, uh, thank you both for hopping on here tonight. Elsa, we normally like to start these off with, uh, we want to learn a little bit about you, where you're from, kind of paint us a picture of, uh, you know, what life looks like for you, if you don't mind. I would be happy to do that. Jared and Brian, and I know how you start these off, and... It's usually with the latte, right? <laughs> but I do not have my bushel of latte. I'm a, I'm a shiner gal. So okay. if you're okay with that, I'm going to pop my top there. Oh, amen. That's just, that's just fine. Hey, I lived in Texas for a couple of years, so I've enjoyed that well, many times. <laughs> well, Brian, I grew up in New Mexico, so we, okay. uh, we were – I won't say we were anti-Texan, but I will say that the only reason the Texans came over to New Mexico was to use our ski slopes. Uh, <laughs> well, that's where Shiner box from, right? Texans. And eat our food, eat our green chili. That was the big, uh, the big draw. So, yeah, I grew up down in New Mexico. Um, got my wildlife degree from New Mexico State. Uh, working on quail. Spent a lot of time. Um, doing upland work and, you know, getting my wildlife degree. Uh, did a lot of activities with the Wildlife Society when I was down there in college. And and was that's where I learned to hunt. Uh, my first first hunting really was uh, I, you know, grew up camping and, and fishing with my dad. He was in the Navy. We traveled a lot, but we would camp and fish a lot. Um, and then when I got to college, I wanted to try turkey hunting. So I uh, started turkey hunting in college. And when I ended up graduating from New Mexico State, I moved to Missouri. They have a great wildlife program in the state. And I ended up working on a quail research project for the uh, Missouri Department of Conservation. And that led into my decision to get a master's degree. I went on uh, to the University of Missouri, worked on river otters, worked with a lot of the trappers in the state, 
and got my master's degree um, through University of Missouri. Wow, very cool. So how many uh, how many total years of schooling were you were you quote unquote training for? <clears throat> Jared, more than most. <laughs> Let's yeah. just say that <clears throat> I did a lot of the uh, this <laughs> during college <laughs> and uh, stayed maybe an extra year that that I probably shouldn't have, but I ended up uh, with a good GPA in the wildlife division and and um, you know I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed my. Uh, schooling in, in, at both New Mexico and in, in Missouri. Just learned a lot from those wildlife biologists and and uh, seemed like it was a little, I spent a little too much time uh, having fun, but I really did learn a lot and I, I've, I've enjoyed it very much. So uh, then I was able to work with the Missouri Department of Conservation uh, when I graduated. So I was, I, you know, volunteered a lot with them and did a lot of work while I was doing my master's. And so was able to slide into a position. They had just created the new private lands division in Missouri. So that would have been around 2000. Uh, and I was one of the first biologists they hired to be a private lands biologist, working with landowners. So it's kind of neat that my career has taken a full circle. I get to do that again. Um, but uh, worked for there quite a while. Then I ran the statewide quail program for the Missouri Department of Conservation. Then... Uh, Quail Forever opened up in Missouri, started doing some activities, and they wanted to hire a biologist uh, state coordinator, someone to, to, to run the chapters, work with chapters, work with volunteers. So I went on to do that and uh, worked for QF for almost 13 years. And wow. then, oh, most, wow. yeah, so most recently um, I've been, you know, after I left PF and QF, I went to work with the BM Butterfly Habitat Fund. So Really, really, some great programs going on out there for wildlife habitat, and and I really I get to work with landowners again. I get to help them develop their properties, and I just absolutely love it. Um, it not just landowners, developers, um, companies that are working on rights away, uh, electrical, uh, solar power projects. So we're getting to do a lot um, in the bee and butterfly habitat fund. I really, really enjoy it, and the people that I work with are really incredible. These um, wildlife biologists and the beekeepers, people um, that I hadn't dealt with a lot, you know, the beekeeping is new to me, and these folks are just, just as passionate as you, you know, big trophy hunter deer guys are. <laughs> I mean, they're just as passionate about their bees as you are about, you know, the 40-point the buck there. That's awesome. It sounds like quite the... So, uh, it's a lot of fun. I'm enjoying, enjoying my career. Yeah, I know. it sounds like you've had quite the career, especially on... Um, with a bunch of great organizations and and you know how much of that are you or were you outside you know out in the God's creation and fresh air how much of that were you outside for as much as I could get and, and there awesome. was a lot of it there, probably as I as I finished up my career with with pheasants forever and quail forever there probably less in the field and, and I'm glad to go back to more of that now with the bee and butterfly habitat fund um, and, and that was because I was coordinating the state programs and hiring the biologists that were working with the landowners. So that became, you know, where I was doing a lot more uh, inside office work, working with NRCS offices and working with our partners at the Missouri Department of Conservation and, you know, a lot more desk work. So um, it was nice to, it's nice to move on and still, and now be able to do more with the landowners and work with them in the field a little bit more. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. I know, um, we're, we're starting to branch out a little bit in, in some of our services and, and work with, with 
particular landowners, and that's pretty that's pretty fun. You know, you learn something new um, with everyone you talk to, and just I just love land. So being able to go and see people's property, and you know, like you said, they're just as passionate about their property as as we are. Uh, any any conservationist and, and land steward is, so that's pretty cool. To have them welcome you onto your onto their place, to me, that's a big deal. You know, they're welcoming yeah. you into their life. They're they're inviting you out to be a part of something that they've probably saved, you know, their whole life to buy a place like this. At least, you know, if they're making the money I'm making, they've probably yeah. saved their whole life to buy the farm they wanted um, and, and to buy it to hunt and to enjoy it and, you know, do conservation work and put that ecosystem back the right way. Um, yeah, it's it's a pretty neat deal. Now, Elsa, would you walk us through what exactly the uh, Bee and Butterfly Habitat Fund is and how sure. this all came together? Yeah, Brian. Um, we are a fairly young not-for-profit, um, and I've been I've been with the Bee and Butterfly Habitat Fund myself for a year. So they've been they've been in business. I'll call it business. Uh, the business of helping people put habitat on the ground for about three years, um, and they were funded over concerns about trying to help landowners um, have a good source of seed, to have quality projects, and to be able to put something on the ground that was good for pollinators. For honeybees are a big concern for us, and uh, native pollinators and monarch butterflies. I mean, it, you may or may not know, but the monarch butterfly, are, there, there are some issues there. I mean, there's sure. uh, been some concerns over the last couple of years. Um, and actually in December of 2020, they will decide whether or not to list, uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service will decide whether or not to list the monarch as an endangered species. So, wow. and that's a huge, huge issue. I mean, how many people grew up, you know, growing one of those babies in their science class, you know, putting the Christmas. Right. And I mean, you guys have kids, right? I know, Jared, I was oh, listening yeah. to your podcast, and you and Brian both have kids, and yep. I'm sure they'll be doing that if they haven't already yet um, when they get to school. And um, that's something we all know about, kind of an iconic species. And, and to think that we've lost 80% of those, um, wow. that species, um, because of habitat changes, it's just, it's frightening. And and the great thing about wildlife habitat work and, and the work that I'm still doing now is that we're putting great habitat on the ground. Maybe we're calling it for bees and butterflies, but it's great habitat for deer, for pheasants, for turkeys, for, um, you know, everything, really. I mean, you, you know, we're putting good, diverse habitat on the ground, and, and it's benefiting lots of species. So we like that. Yeah, I was watching one of the videos that you had sent us over on the email, and I spend a lot of time out west, especially in the fall, but you lose sight of that. You see those thousands and thousands of acres of corn and or beans or those monocultures, and it's just you, you don't think about it until you stop and see a video like that, and it reminds you that, you know, these, these farming practices have gotten so good, there's no fence rows or hedge rows or anything along the edges anymore for anything. It's just crops from edge to edge, road to road. And how clean they are now too, Brian. I mean, it, you know, when you get out in that field, it is clean. There is not, there's not a weed to be found in these fields. Um, so that's a concern as well. So Absolutely. things have changed. Things have changed. And, and uh, you know, I see that when I drive around the Midwest all the time. You know, you go up to Iowa and it's just, uh, it's amazing how big farm equipment has become and 
you know, these fields are just huge. Even getting some of our landowners to participate in the program, if they're wanting to put a smaller smaller acreage in, um, we have issues with that. They don't have enough, the equipment's too, too big to fit into their plots that they've got, you know. So that's, you know, we run into those issues as well. But, but yeah, the, the, the uh, habitat sure has changed. The landscape has changed a lot. So in situations People always like say that it hasn't changed, but it really has. I mean, it, oh, it, yeah. you know, you think it hasn't changed. And they always say that, you know, when you talk to landowners a lot, they're like, well, it was just like it was when Grandpa owned it. And I, I hear, <laughs> I've heard that all my career. It's just like it was when Grandpa owned it. But, you know, they're not cutting firewood out of that fence row anymore. And no. what, what used to be a diverse grass mix is probably now all fescue or all brome. And it's grown up and it's thick in that in that hedgerow or that fence row and it doesn't allow anything else to grow and it's a, a monoculture on its uh, you know on its own not not like a crop monoculture but it's a monoculture of one grass species and sure. that doesn't benefit anything really right so uh, what what kind of percentage would we have to see like say somebody has 500 acres what what percentage would we have to set, set aside to make any kind of a difference you know, I'm going to harken back to my days as a quail biologist and give you the, the it, it doesn't even have to be 10%. So we're not even talking 50 acres on that farm. Okay. Um, there's a lot of different programs you can do to put habitat on the ground at a level that's enough to supplement. I mean, because I think crops are great. You know, um, deer use them and wildlife uses the crops and they get into the crop fields. Um, but you need that, you know, for the... For the uh, pollinators, you definitely need those nectar sources, so you need a lot more of a diverse, you know, your forbs, your wildflowers, you need to have that stuff there. And that's also beneficial for, you know, browse, for deer browse, but also for deer and turkeys, for chicks and, you know, brood-rearing habitat, really. Um, so you don't have to do, you know, we're not talking about talking people out of making a living farming. We're just talking about taking a little small percentage and doing something in an odd area or a turnaround or a small field that's, you know, difficult to get into or, you know, just a couple acres over here off to the edge. I mean, that that's enough for wildlife. They don't need all of it. They, they just need some of it. So, so that's the same with pollinators as it is with the other species. Sure. That, that doesn't sound like much to ask for, but I bet it's easier said than done on that for sure. Sure. So what are the objectives of the BBHF? So we want to put quality pollinator habitat on the ground. Um, we want to provide a seed source for landowners that's inexpensive. And kind of at the end of it all, and I think your, your viewers will understand this part, really part of what motivated the folks to really start the program was the fact that we want to prove to USDA, to NRCS, um, that you can have a diverse mix. You can have a 50 species mix for CRP, and it doesn't have to cost $1,000 an acre. It doesn't have to be that expensive. And and the way we're going about it was, you know, is to develop these projects to get some folks to do some research on them. We've got several states doing research on our plantings um, and show people that you can have a 50 species mix that provides great benefit and it doesn't need to cost the landowner, you know, $800, $1,000 an acre. Um, and it can still be a good quality, diverse planting for you. We want to show, show folks that. Um, we want to we change. We know that, that uh, USDA and the CRP program is incredible. Um, a lot of acres there. If we can just make one 
you know, tweak it a little bit and and show them that some other options are out there for it, I think that we really um, we can make a difference in, in the bigger scale. So we, we want folks to be successful with their planting. So so we just want that better habitat on the ground, and, and we think we can do it. We think we can put 50 species together for you that'll be inexpensive. And I'm, we're, we're proving that now with our projects. That's pretty amazing. Now, does does a CRP uh, program, does that normally cost 800 to to $1,000 per acre to get that started? So, no, it doesn't. However, if you wanted to put a 50 species mix together, okay. I don't think I'm okay. too far off. Um, gotcha. It doesn't, but it doesn't require that either. So, you know, the, the it's not going to require you to put those mixes on. Even a good quality. Quality, what they call the good quality pollinator mixes um, in CRP, at least when I was a biologist. Now, things may have changed just a little bit, but the minimum was 12 species for a pollinator planting. Okay. The minimum always turns into what people always do. So, Jared, unless you're, like, really passionate about this, <laughs> you're going to say, oh, the 12 is the minimum. Yeah, I'll do 12. And that's gotcha. what everyone does because gotcha. the minimum becomes the standard. And we right. don't want to be the standard. We want, or, or, or if we do, we want the standard to be at least 40 species. Um, so that provides a, a much more diverse quality piece of habitat that provides, um, you know, bloom periods throughout the season. So it doesn't just bloom in the middle of June and July. We've got good, good stuff for early and good stuff for late. So. Wow, that's impressive. Very diverse. I like yeah, that. It is. And, you know, like, like you guys are trying to do, make this affordable for the normal landowner. You know, like you said, uh, the rest of us who are saving up and trying to buy these small parcels of land, that's incredible. I mean, that's that's awesome. 50 species, 40 species mixed, that's that's really great. Yeah, and I think Michigan's mix is like 57 species, I think. Wow. Um, so, so that, and, and that's, and every one of our plantings is always done in two pieces. So, it, for example, if you can get up to 25 acres of free seed for us. So you can do a project that, let's just say, 20 acres. You're, you're doing 20 acres. On and you said farm. that was free seed. Yes. So so you do 20 acres. We're going to ask you to put 10 acres in into a honeybee mix, which is a much smaller mix. That In Michigan, it's like seven species. So it's several species of clover and a few other species in there as well. Okay. Uh, and then... The other 10 acres will go into your 57 species mix, which is mostly natives. Um, it's got some grass in it, but it's mostly forbs. So it's it's heavy to the wildflower component. And you put those in. A lot of guys that are kind of savvy will put them in like a picture frame. So they'll take the outside exterior and put the clover mix around it, calling that, you know, I can call it a clover mix. You guys can call it a green browse plot or a green fire break. <laughs> That's um, what I was just going to say. You're yep. going to burn the other stuff, right? Yep. yep. So you put it around the outside and you plant your pollinator, your butterfly planting in the middle. And that way you can oh. burn and, and manage that much better, uh, more effectively. So so that's what a lot of folks will do. Um, we get projects anywhere from, you know, two acres, which is our minimum. We don't do smaller projects. There's a lot of people out there that will help you with a small yard planting, and, and we're just not – that's not our focus. So our focus in, is in the larger than two-acre projects, um, and, and up to 25 acres is free. So um, – and the only – I mean, we have a few things we ask you on the application, but 
the only the biggest thing for us is is site prep is getting that site ready and making sure that it's going to grow well for you. Um, and I'll I'll give you that secret later. That, <laughs> All right. That way people will stay tuned. Yeah, no, that that's that's awesome. I think you're I think you're the perfect guest for our listeners because two to twenty five acres. I mean, that's our bread and butter, honestly. Um, or, or you know, a plot or a field of that size. I mean, I think a lot of us can relate to that. So that's really that's really awesome. And Jared, it's okay that I get to tell my husband you just said I was perfect. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Great. Well, I thought you were going to go on to say it's because you're a bird dog person, or you're a you know I I am a I am a giant bird dog person. I do horseback field trials with my dogs, and I I really uh, I enjoy that aspect of getting outdoors. Wow. You know, I I uh, love the bird dogs and love competing, and the beagles too. We do a lot of rabbit hunting with veterans organizations and youth hunts and that stuff, and and uh, we love the beagles too. So. Yeah, that's why he married me because that in that way he thinks I'm perfect, but not in the you know perfect two to twenty five acre slot. And, and we will do projects larger too, Jerry. Um, we'll do larger projects, but we ask you to cost share at that point if you're going to do say if you want to do forty acres. What I would tell you to do is apply for twenty this year and apply for twenty next year. That way, you're still underneath our free cap for look at that for the projects. So very nice. Yeah. We try to find any reason we can to say yes to a project. Right. We really want to work with people, and we want to help them do the best they can for, for pollinators and, you know, everything that uses that diverse habitat. So who who pays for this feed before we move on? Uh, yeah. How is it, no, how, that's how great. Are you that's a good yeah. question. Um, so right now in the field there's two of us that work in the field myself i work with the landowners and work with their projects do the one-on-one technical assistance over the phone help them sign up their projects get the seed ordered and my colleague is out in nebraska and he actually i actually worked for him when i was at pheasants forever and then when he left pf um you know he called me up a little bit gave me a little bit of discussion about what i was going to do with my career and and then uh when when it came time, I moved from PS to be in Butterfly Habitat Fund, and now I'm working with him again. He's a, he's an incredible individual. He develops all of our seed mixes, and he works with people on um, all the fundraising aspect of the Be in Butterfly Habitat Fund. So he goes out, he, you know, shakes the bushes and finds the donors, private donors, a uh, lot of beekeepers, and beekeeping organizations support us. Um, so we get a lot of funding from them. We get some funding from bigger ag corporations. Um, we, we like to say in our world, and it's it's the philosophy that he and I personally follow and have always followed all of our careers, is we feel like conservation is like a big tent. You know, a lot of people can fit underneath that tent, and if you if you leave your logo at the door and you don't and you put your ego right next to your logo and leave that at the door, then you can accomplish all kinds of things, especially if you don't care who gets the credit. You don't, You can really accomplish a lot. And so we partner with a lot of different organizations, groups, foundations to try and get this quality habitat put on the ground because it isn't, you know, it isn't just for a hunter, it, and it isn't just for a bird watcher, and it isn't just for somebody that wants a pretty uh, pond dam. Um, it's you know, for everybody, and, and we try to involve lots of different groups when we do fundraising, and, and, and we, we bring everybody to the table that we can. We don't, uh, we don't say, no, we're not going to work with you. Um, 
in most cases, or in okay. you know most cases I've worked with. We'll, we'll work with anybody that's interested in helping us fund projects. That's great. Yeah, I saw, uh, I think, a video you guys did with um, BASF, Large Chemical Company, yep. right? I mean. Yep. And we work with Syngenta. We work yeah. with uh, Bayer. Um, we work with a lot of those different groups, and they've been very supportive and very helpful in trying to get these quality habitat projects on the ground. So, and I think they're genuine about it. You know, I, I, I know, you know, some of the folks are concerned about different, you know, aspects of herbicides and, and using, you know, what we're doing with the system. But, you know what, these folks really are genuine that I've met and have worked with. Um, they're good partners. Uh, National Corn Growers Association, we're working with them. Um, a lot of their people are the kind of people we want to put in a, a plot, you know. Um, their farmers right. have the equipment. They can do it. Um, so we want to work with those folks. Awesome. Very, very awesome. So, I mean, I know why I would want to put some, some wildflowers or some pollinator mixes out on my property, but why does all this matter? Why should people be doing this? Why do we need pollinators? You know, what's the point of all this, just for anybody who might not know? Sure. So, um, you know, we, when we do our programs and we have, like, a kid's program, or we, you know, we always talk about, like, one of every three bites of your food is made possible by a pollinator. And wow. that's true, absolutely true. So, and then there's all kinds of stuff you can, you know, Google and look up that shows you what, what a grocery store would look like without pollinators. And, it, and it's pretty sad. I mean, it's chocolate, coffee. I mean, my gosh, you know, that gets most people right there. Me on the chocolate, most people on the, on the coffee. But, um, you know, we would, there are a lot of things we wouldn't have if we didn't have pollinators. And so, you know, just trying to take care of those species and make sure that they're out there, um, I think is is, a, is pretty imperative to keeping that ecosystem in place and, and making sure all the pieces are there. You know, I think it was Leopold that said something about you can't tinker with everything unless you keep all the pieces. You start losing the pieces, and your tinkering doesn't work as well because you don't you don't have all the pieces anymore. And I think pollinators are a huge piece of what we do. And um, you know, we we just we're really trying hard to work on that aspect of it. Um, put that that put them back in the landscape again where they used to be. And I I don't think we've hit this yet. How many or how much of the percentage of of pollinator habitat have we lost that we're trying to get uh, back? Is there a number ish? No, I, mean, I that's awful hard to come up with a number. I will tell you that um, we often talk about wetland losses. In the as a wildlifeologist, we always talk about wetland losses because that's you know the waterfowl guys are you know passionate about that and oh we've lost all these wetlands but we have lost um, gosh I'm gonna I'm gonna say the figure and I'm probably gonna get it wrong don't kill me but I think it's it's really close to 99% of the native prairies that we used to have and wow. when I think native prairie wow. I think diverse ecosystem of prairie. Um, we are not, as the Bee and Butterfly Habitat Fund, we are not restoring prairie. We have some non-native species in our mix. Um, we are not out there to restore your native prairie. What we are doing is providing a really good high-diversity planting for you to use to help benefit pollinators. Um, but just think about that. The, the tall grass prairie, the short grass prairie, how much of that we've lost in those diverse grasslands that we've lost. Um, it's, it, it's amazing to me. You know, we've here in the Midwest, you know, and a lot of it's gone to, you know, 
not, not just crop, but we've lost a lot to our uh, grazing lands. You know, it's fescue is like seven bucks an acre. I mean, to get it started and get it going. I mean, who's going to want to pay, right. you know, 500 bucks an acre for pollinator planting or, or a thousand even if you get these heavy duty mixes that have the, you know, local ecotype and um, who's going to pay a thousand dollars an acre to restore that when they could just seed it down to fescue for seven bucks an acre. It's uh, it's, it doesn't, you know, unless you really care about or know, and, and you don't care until you know. And, you know, I, I don't think a lot of people do really know what the declines. I think when you hear the figure that, you know, the 80% on the monarch butterfly decline, that's a big number. Um, you know, quail mm-hmm. are in the same range. You know, bobwhite quail, same range. Somewhere around 80% decline in the uh, quail population. Um, it's just amazing uh, to me what we've lost. And I think people are just starting to pay more attention now. No, that's good. And, and that's what we're trying to do here as well is, is just make people aware and, and teach people, you know, how to become better habitat managers and just be more like, you know, have more Aldo Leopold in their, in their back of their mind at least, you know, just versus planting the fescue. I mean, you're real. You're realistic. Seven bucks an acre versus 500. I mean, let's be real here. Who's the majority of people would probably just lean towards something a little bit more cost effective if, if you don't know. So that's that's a yep. great point. Yeah. And there's some other grasses and and things that you plant. Um, there's some more there's some more benefits, not just for the pollinators, you know, the soil. I mean, you're not tilling things anymore, right? And, and what else? What other benefits are there with with your mixes here that some of our listeners could could use? Sure. I mean, water quality is is a huge one. Uh, people are really concerned about water quality and. You know, the water quality benefits of, of getting one of these mixes on the ground, it's not just that it helps with erosion or if it, or it helps with sedimentation. Um, it also has a really great infiltration rate. You know, as you know, the, the root systems of these natives and the and um, some of the native warm season grasses that we have in our mixtures, those root systems are just incredibly um, expansive. And so the infiltration from a water, from a rainfall event, you know, it's going to go into the soil instead of sheet flowing across the field and taking the soil, you know, the top of it down to Louisiana. Um, right. We fish down in Louisiana. My husband and I, we <laughs> like to go down there, and, and he goes with our rabbit hunting buddies, and, and we go down there. And I swear, last time we, we went, I went down with him, and, uh, you know, we rabbit, these guys come up to Missouri and rabbit hunt, bring some of their beagles, and we have our beagles, and, and we go rabbit hunting with them a lot. And last time we were driving down, we're going um, down to Venice Beach for a, for a fishing trip. And we get down there, and we get off the boat. And Jeff, my husband, he's a wildlife biologist, too. He looks around. He goes, oh, my gosh, that's where our topsoil is. You really? know, because you can just see in the Gulf, you know, it just – and I'm like, yep, that's where it goes. <laughs> when uh, oh, man. you see it head all the way south. But, yeah, um, so any kind of these native – more native plantings and, and things done on purpose to conserve soil and to to work on water quality, um, I think are, you know, positive things for the environment. All right. You, you mentioned your dogs a few times now. i got to ask, what kind of dogs do you have, how many, and how often are you working in the field with your dogs? I mean, Brian and I both have duck dogs. I have two labs. He has a lab. Oh, you almost have duck dogs then. My husband has a Chesapeake. <laughs> he would say, and he would be happy that I said that. Almost. Touche. Touche. <laughs> uh, 
you know, I like I said, I lived at Pheasants Forever for almost 13 years, and I swear there was just a – it was almost a requirement to own a lab to work there. Yeah. Um, we have one Chesapeake. We have two German Shorthairs. Um, we have an English Pointer, a Wiesla, which is uh, my newest field trial prospect. He's a, he's a good boy. And then we have uh, the Beagles as well. So. Wow. Yeah, we're at nine maybe. We're, <laughs> we, I try to keep it under ten because he starts to grouse a little bit at ten, and, and so we're at nine right now. So we need another dog. <laughs> That's great. That's how I look at it. And we do. You know, we don't have kids, so for us, our – like our excitement and our joy in life comes from running field trials, running. My husband runs those speed type, more speed type events, Bird Hunters okay. United, those like small field with his little short hair. She's just a little firecracker. She can, she, she'll kill anything, but she's absolutely um, on fire on those little small fields and great retriever. And then we love going out to Nebraska and prairie chicken hunting and um, sharp tail hunting. And uh, we do a lot of, um, new new hunter events, so we bring women on and kids and and veterans, like I said, and we just we just enjoy sharing that passion with people that you know don't get a chance to do it as often as we do. Like tonight, I got to go out and we're throwing marks because we're trying to you'd laugh at throwing marks for the Vizsla because he is a, a bird dog, a field trial horseback field trial bird dog, okay. and that's his job. But we've been learning how to throw marks for him, and we're trying to get him on multiple marks and. Um, and he retrieves and he swims like a fish. So he's uh, he's a lot of fun. I'm enjoying him a lot. That's that sounds great. great. Yeah, you guys are living the dream out there, you know, getting new people involved, spending a lot of time outdoors with the dogs. I mean, both wildlife biologists. That's pretty cool. I we love say. it. And, I'll, and I get to tell you one more story. And, you know, I was telling go, you about yeah, go. Pete. And Pete, you know, so if you see the picture behind me, that's my coworker in Nebraska, my colleague, wow. Pete Berthelsen. So he took that. That's a pollinator plot, one of our bee and butterfly plots. But he uh, used to go with us, right? He has black, uh, chocolate labs. Um, he has. He's down to one. He lost his good, his good, really good dove dog and pheasant dog um, this last year, which was very sad. But so he's got Gracie, and, and so he used to go hunting with us all the time when we come out and visit. And nowadays, like he'll get Gracie up and he'll load her up in the truck, and then he'll put these bags on his on his vest. And he'll just wander around collecting seed the whole time we're grouse hunting. <laughs> like, dude, there goes prairie chickens. Oh, look, over there, there goes a prairie chicken. And Pete's like, oh, 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 sorry. He's like, world milkweed, you know, green yep. milkweed over here. And, oh, look, there's some purple prairie clover. And I'm like, dude, you're turning into a prairie fairy. And he's like, you can't, he goes, you can't even make that a bad word. So it's, it's totally true. He, it's, it's, uh, he's a guy that's done, you know, labs all his life and, and loves to hunt, but but just, you know, as you move through your career, you know, there's that hierarchy of learning to hunt, and then you get to the point where you're interested in the mechanics of it and what you're using, and is it a bow, or is it, and then you get to the point where you're starting to, you know, the harvest is way less important, and mm-hmm. it's everything else around that, and I'm lucky to be at that point now, and, and I just enjoy the heck out of being out in the field with friends and sharing that passion, and um, that's for me. That's that's the deal. And and I see people that that do have kids, which we don't. It's sharing that with their kids and their grandkids, and they they just want to pass that on. And I just I love being a part of that. However, I can with these projects and helping them provide the habitat that you know I can see their kids looking out over some of these 
habitat projects for years to come and, you know, going out there and it maybe capturing monarchs and tagging them or something or, or just enjoying that habitat. And, wow. you know, I mean, we're, I think we're all the same kind of people, <laughs> you know, it's just that uh, everybody has a little different, you guys are, are big into the, the deer and the, you know, and the turkeys I see too. And, um, and I love to turkey hunt myself. I didn't have a good year this year, but I usually have a pretty good year, but, um, yeah, we're, we're we're trying to diversify. Uh, we we get caught up in the the whitetails a lot and and the gobblers, but at the same time, I'm so enthralled with this conversation right now, just learning. And the same thing happened when we talked ponds a while back and fish habitat and this and that. So we're trying to get out there and just broaden our scope a little bit. And you know, talking to people like you who are uh, as nutty about it as we are is pretty cool. I love it. Yeah. We, we, we really are, and I, I don't think, you know, I had a, a, a fella, um, if you ever look him up and you get a chance to listen to him speak, he's, he's been a speaker for presence forever. That's not how I ever met him. I'm trying to think of his name now, and I, I won't get it while we're talking, of course, because I'm on the spot, but um, he's from, like, Nova Scotia or British Columbia or, or somewhere like that, and he, and he talks about conservation. In Shane Mahoney is the guy's name. Have okay. you guys ever heard of him? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes, he talks about the North American conservation model, and he does it. It's a great, like, YouTube thing to look up and listen to him. But he, he came to my college when I was in uh, doing my master's in Missouri, and I got to kind of be his guide around the university. And I remember wow. him sitting in that class talking to me about um, a turkey hunt. So we're talking about, you know, when you go out to the woods and you – you know, you're out there in the dark, and you're sitting there, and the woods just wake up around you. You know, you got the whippoorwills calling, and then they kind of, like, drift off, and then you start hearing all the other songbirds come in, and then you hear the goblin, and and then and you see movement, and then that turkey flies down, and then you're seeing him, and he's, and he's walking over, and he's starting to strut, and he's gobbling at you, and he's got his feathers up, and he's, you know, and it's so exciting, and you're so excited. And then, you know, you're able to shoot, you know, so you take him down. His argument to me was that for an, uh, a non-hunter, that the enjoyment of that entire day would have been exactly the same up until the moment that you pulled the trigger. Mm-hmm. Up until that moment, you had so much in common. And, that, and I think about that all the time because I think we have that much in common. I mean, I know – you know, we're never going to get the antis to like what we're doing. We're never going to get that to happen. But all those other people that are that would have enjoyed that moment all the way up until the shot, don't we have a lot in common with those people? Even if they'll never harvest a deer, maybe they're never. Maybe they don't have to harvest a deer. Maybe they're just happy with all the rest of it. And as long as they're not anti what we're doing, I think that's a lot in common. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't think we have any room to work with the antis, to be honest, but. I do think that we have a lot in common with the people that maybe they don't pull the trigger, but we have a lot in common with them up until that point. Um, you know, the enjoyment of the, the fields and, and, you know, just the sheer excitement of having a gobbler in there and gobbling at you and the colors on that head. And I mean, it's just all of it is, is exciting until you get home and then the chiggers, chiggers and the ticks. Oh, I get a lot of those. I don't know if Michigan <laughs> is, is high on the chigger, scale no 
But we don't get them that oh up north, but I don't miss them from living down south, that's for sure. Ryan, I grew up in New Mexico. I never knew what a chigger was. When people started talking about it in Missouri, I'm like, what? Brutal. It was it was a horrifying event the first time I got chiggers. And, <laughs> and I just – and I can walk out in the field with my husband, and I swear that man has some anti-tick chigger repellent in his system. <laughs> he grew up in New, in New York, and he must just – freeze them out or something because they don't go to him. They all come to me and, and I'm covered in, in both of them. It's not it's fun. Horrible. Yeah, that's a great point you made because in, in, in society today, we, we have a tendency to always focus on the little bit of negative stuff that, you know, you don't like what this group's doing with that, what this group's doing. But you bring up a great point. We have so much in common with hikers and bird watchers and, you just you name it, people that enjoy the outdoors. If we just focus on that stuff that brings us together, we can make a huge difference because we're we're shrinking in numbers as hunters, and lots of other outdoor groups are shrinking as as society's moving forward in this more technological age that we're living in. So I, I think we could all benefit from that. And that's that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. Now you yeah, mentioned some uh, you mentioned some projects. Uh, talk about the next-gen projects, uh, Seed of Legacy, and anything else that's going on over there at the BBHF. Sure. So our our um, next-gen was kind of the name for our, as we started in developing these projects, we call the whole program the Seed of Legacy program, and that is where we provide the, the free seed for landowners or cities or um, you know electrical utilities, so rights-of-way groups, um, you know, any anyone really qualifies. Pretty much anyone qualifies for our program, and it's between two and twenty-five acres of free seed for your program for your for your site, um, as long as you have that site prep. And we'll ask you some questions. You go online to the application. I'll give you that information later too. But um, you go online and apply. Um, it's a pretty simple process. You'll end up talking to me at some point. And we'll talk about your site prep, and and um, it's a, a one-pager contract. Half of the project needs to be planted to a honeybee mix. The other half is planted to the butterfly mix. Um, and each mix is developed for each state. So we're in 12 states, um, kind of the Midwest. I'll say the Midwest, upper Midwest um, portion of the U.S. Kind of the the honeybee, the sweet spot for honeybees, where it intersects with uh, monarch butterflies. So so that's why we have these 12 states chosen. Um, we get a lot of interest from other states too. And we just haven't, um, instead of doing that shotgun approach, we really want to be a little more targeted and try and try and keep it to that, to, to the area we think it has the most need right now. So, so Michigan is one of those states. Um, and it's a simple process to, to apply, you know, online. We ask for a couple things like know what your, uh, UTM, your coordinates for the ground are, or township section range, that would be fine. Um, and then we ask for some pictures of the site. So those would be the only difficult parts of the whole application is downloading the pictures, and it's all a web application. Um, and you download some site pictures to show us what the habitat looks like right now on site so we can tell whether or not, you know, it's taken over with mare's tail and ragweed or uh, it's a, you know, solid block of fescue or what it looks like now. And then maybe a Google Maps kind of thing, or I use OnX, um, 
use my Onyx thing to, to kind of get my map out and just show where it is in the landscape. Um, it's a pretty simple process to apply. Okay. Now, you, you mentioned uh, honeybees and monarchs. Is there anything that they have in common? They use a lot of the same pollinator plants um, or they, they, a lot of they don't. They don't really use a lot of the same plants, which is why we have the two separate uh, mixes. So the honeybee mix is going to be heavy clover. Um, really, for the honeybees, they need something that's a dense planting of, for, we call it forage even, just like, just like you would if you're raising cattle. They call it forage. So the honeybee mm -hmm. forage is a pretty dense planting of a clover that will all erupt at the same time, bloom at the same time. Honeybees really like that because then they'll kind of swarm it and use the heck out of it all at once. Whereas um, most of the other, a lot of the other pollinators and monarchs included will kind of flip from different species to different species and, and, and they don't come in like a big swarm like the honeybees do and, and kind of hit it like that. that. That's not how they deal with it. Yeah, we're all pretty familiar with like um, milkweed. I don't know if you know, a lot of us hunters use that as a wind indicator when we're sitting in our tree stands or stalking. So we're doing your work out there. You know, like like I said, we've got over 60 in some of them, and in Michigan, almost 60 um, species. And some grasses are in there, too, and some sedges, but it's pretty much a high-diverse planting of, of a lot of different wildflowers. Coneflowers are going to be in there. Um, you're going to see bergamot, probably. Um, there's, there's just a whole bunch of different uh, beneficial. A lot of, a lot of them are deer browse. The, the deer will really like them um, and be in there a lot too on them. Um, so it's a pretty, pretty good diverse mix. So when we get these mixes from you, are they all mixed together, honeybee and monarch seeds, or are we going to be planting these separately? Yeah, good question, Brian. And, and that, and that's pretty important. We do separate the mixes. You're going to get okay. a bag of one and a bag of the other. Um, we're going to ask you to plant them separately because if you do mix them, what you end up with is that clover becomes more aggressive and it doesn't leave enough. Um, the, the native, the more native uh, monarch mix needs a little bit of elbow room and it takes a little longer to establish. So you don't want to mix the clover in there because then it'll just, um, it, it's a little more aggressive, so we don't want to mix the two species, the the two bags together. So yeah, you plant them totally separate. They can be next to each other, um, like I said, maybe like the uh, picture frame where you put the clover around the outside and put the butterfly on the inside, so you can burn it. Then um, that works really well. Or you know, two different fields, or even one field just split in half. It, however you want to do it, we don't we don't want to micromanage. However you want to do it for your place. I know a lot of guys they'll plant that uh, the monarch mix along the driveway because our wife really likes the, the, you know, the prettier flowers along the driveway and they'll plant the, the uh, honeybee, which is shorter and just mostly just green stuff um, kind of uh, on the outside. So you don't see it really. It's, it's kind of invisible because it's shorter than the, than the uh, wildflower mix. So. Okay. Now as far as um, site prep, uh, what kind of pH range are we looking at? And do you like to see, the people get everything cleared off down to the bare dirt, or how do you like to have that set up? That That's probably one of the most important things that we like, and I'll give you the simplest answer that you you will ever hear. Soybeans. 
Soybeans are the answer. If if you are planning one of our plots and you put soybeans in um, over the summer and you harvest those soybeans in the spring like you normally would or the deer eat them all, either way, I know some of these, you know, smaller fields, the deer are going to go in and take take the entire soybean crop anyway. Um, right. If if you do that and you and you have a you know your field then is just little tiny sobs of soybean stubble, come November or December, then you just dormant seed that. You can either air seed it, you can get a drill and drill it if you want to. The caution there is that most people plant the mixes too deeply because the wildflower portion of the mix, the monarch portion, you know you only need to bury a seed twice the the diameter of the seed, and some of these seeds are, you know, as big as like a grain of rice or something, and so you only need to bury it like not even an eighth of an inch deep for it to be able to germinate. So a lot of people plant it too deeply, but if you're putting it into soybean stubble, you can just broadcast. You can even Johnny Appleseed it and hand broadcast it. We've done I that with Project Kids, so um, that works fine. Uh, and then you do it in the winter, a dormant seeding. And when you come back that next year, the soybeans do a couple things. They take care of all the, you know, the vegetation on the top. If you're using Roundup Ready, you know, you're you're getting rid of the weeds. Sure. So you don't have a weedy competition on the top. But then beneath beneath the soil, they have that extensive root system, and they oh, fix yeah. nitrogen. Yeah. So you guys know. I mean, you guys are the habitat guys, so you know this. They fix nitrogen, and we we have not had any better projects. Anything better than putting soybeans in. Every project that puts soybeans in and then plants dormant seeding looks heads and shoulders above any other site prep method. Anything. Even cereal rye that you terminate, which is okay, um, the soybeans still provide a better um, seed bed. So, so we really just recommend that. I mean, and we don't, we don't get into the, you know, a lot of the specifics of it. Just plant soybeans like you would grow them to sell them or for your food plot and and then, you know, sell right into that stubble. And that's usually um, the best projects that we have are, are created that way. Excellent tip there. Yeah, that's, that's an awesome tip. Um, Johnny Appleseed, is that a professional term, just going Johnny Appleseed yeah. it? I like yeah. that. <laughs> I haven't heard that before. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal well, that from you. Works. I'll give you credit, yeah. but... We had a group of 53 kids locally here do a project and and talk about herding cats. I don't know how parents <laughs> do it, especially this time, like during this COVID thing going on. I don't know how parents can even keep their sanity. But my gosh, 53 kids trying to trying wow. to broadcast seed a pollinator planting and. And we're the crazy people because we've invited them back, and they're going to help us <laughs> put another 20 acres on the ground at the conservation near where I live. So um, the kids are great. I mean, they're, it's fun to do. But get the family involved. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure a lot of the guys you work with um, probably do the weekend work on the farm and maybe mm-hmm. bring some buddies up or family or kids or, you know, that's, that's great. I mean, you do that in November, December, once the ground's cold, and they can just, you know, we always add stuff. Uh, like usually when we when we ship you the seed, it's going to have a filler with it, um, either rice holes or maybe cocoa, um, but it's going to have a filler to it so that it, it feels bulkier to you. It's not 
you know, just this little tiny bag of seed. Um, but when we do kids' programs, we always add more of that. Um, we either add cat litter or more rice holes. And if you want that, you know, for, you know, if you're going to do it that way or have do it with a program or kids coming out, just let us know. We'll add more rice hole to it at the, you know, before it gets shipped out to you. That way you've already got it already prepared, you know, and it's in a bulkier um, format for you to use. But, yeah, yeah. kids uh, kids can do it for you. It's it, The soybean stuff is just, it's simple. It's yeah. super simple and it works really well. No, that's a great point. And that the filler you're adding, to be clear, that's just to help get a, a more even seed distribution, correct? Exactly. And that, and we have found that the rice holes, I don't know if you guys use those a lot or not, um, the rice holes seem to work really well because they're like, it's almost like they're little tiny cups that hold little pieces of seed in them. And, wow. and, they're, and they don't weigh anything, so they don't cost anything to ship really. And, and they, they just add a little bulk, like you said, for, for making it, Make it seem like there's more, and it and it gets that seed dispersed a little more evenly. Perfect. And I just thought of a question: How yeah. tall? How tall are these mixes when when done right? What sort of um, maybe not the um, I believe would be the the clover bl- the blend, which I think is the B blend, or is that yeah. the monarch blend? The B blend. Okay. Nope. How about the the monarch blend? Uh, how tall does that mix get on average? So it depends on the species that are included, okay. but at least the minimum height level is your is your common milkweed. So we're talking at least four or five feet tall. Um, awesome. We do have some some of them have big blue stem in them. So the big blue obviously is a taller plant. Um, right. But all of those mixes, depending on the state, you know what we've included as the grass species there. Um, all of them have a very small proportion of grass in them. We don't want it taking over. I mean, no. where I live, big blue tends to take over a little bit. Indian grass for sure. I mean, that just that almost can create its own monoculture if you have enough of it there. Um, so, so I think you know the the taller warm season grass is you know five six feet tall, but it's not going to be for the majority of it. It's not going to be that tall. Uh, most of them are probably going to be about three feet. You know, okay. it, it's not going to be. You're going to have clump, clumps of, you know, the warm season grasses that are, that are there and taller. And a few species, like one that I don't think we include it in too many seed mixes, but I know it's one that, that I planted this last year on my place, and that's a, um, oh, willow leaf sunflower. And that thing's got to be like 10 feet tall. And nice. it's just a, it's a gorgeous plant. Oh, they're um, beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's a, it's a really neat one. I don't know if it's in many of the seed mixes. It might be in the Nebraska mix, but I don't. I doubt that it's in the Michigan mix. Okay, and so the reason I'm asking, I, I like tall. I like cover. I like the idea of that. Um, wh- why do your mixes differ from state to state? Is that just based on you know the the demographics, yeah. if you will? I mean, exactly. I, I mean, we're not gonna. We're not, and we try to keep. We try to keep the, the monarch mix as native as we can get it. You know, we okay. want the native species to that state in that mix. The clover or the honeybee mix, we're not as concerned about that. That's a, a discrete planting for the benefit of honeybees, and there's been a bunch of research on those plots, and we need to have the clovers in there for them to be beneficial um, to the honeybees. So we don't use anything invasive. But but we are using some non-natives in that honeybee mix. So, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, 
let's move into uh, how a landowner can apply, how we can get this process started. Sure. It, it's really simple. We have a website, and I'll, um, you can put it like I'll – maybe you'll put it – and you're like, no, I see where you put the podcast and what you talked about. You could write www.bnbutterflyfund.org. And that's our website, bnbutterflyfund.org. Excuse me. The the program is uh, called See the Legacy. It's an orange circle. You click on that, and then it'll say Habitat Programs, See the Legacy, Michigan Application, or, you know, Iowa Application, Missouri Application. You just go down there, click in, and then the application is all online right there. And like I said, the only – Difficult part of the entire application probably is downloading your pictures. Take a couple pictures of the site so we can see what it looks like, okay. um, and and then make sure you have your township section range or UTM coordinates for the site because that they will ask you for that as well. And it won't go the application won't go through without those things entered. So you have to have the pictures or it won't enter the application. Okay, and what's no, it sounds it sounds pretty simple, especially when you you explain it. That's that seems pretty easy to me. Um, now managing this moving forward, I mean, are you required to keep it in the ground for a certain amount of time? I mean, I think most people doing this, you know, will keep it for as long as they possibly can. But like, how long do these stands last, and what are any quote unquote requirements that might be there? Sure. So um, we have you sign a one page contract. It's one page just the front, not front and back, small mm-hmm. contract saying that you will manage it for five years uh, to benefit bees and butterflies. As long as it's a good pollinator outcome, that's what we're working on. So if you need to go in and mow it because you're getting a infestation of, right. you know, God forbid, Cerecia lespedeza or something <laughs> horrifying like that, which yeah. we would hope you take care of that before you plant it, which is why you talked to me before. You <laughs> But if you were to have an infestation of something, you know, something that came up and you had problems with something, um, we would want you to spot spray it or to, you know, control that. Um, But short of that, you don't really need to do much management. The first year, probably just like any other wildflower type planting, you probably want to go in and do some mowing the first year just to keep the weed component down. Um, And there's some tricks to that, Jared. You probably – don't deal with it as as much because you guys are, are putting in specific plots for specific reasons. But because the wildflowers are just – they just are a little harder to get started. If you don't control the weed competition and what we get, people calling us is like, yeah, I got a lot of weeds and I got to mow. And it's like, okay, how tall are they? Three feet. So you go in there and you brush hog as high as you can get it and you've got then two feet – of a weedy litter, throw it on top of these baby wildflower seedings. Yeah. That's not a good recipe. So we, if you're going to mow the first year to get rid of some of the weeds, we ask you to mow when it's maybe a foot tall and mow it at like eight to 10 inches. So, so that you're only taking the tops off. You're not throwing all that litter back on top of the baby seedlings and smothering them. Um, and, and honestly, other than that, some prescribed fire, which we love. I mean, you don't become a wildlife biologist if you don't love prescribed <laughs> We love to light a match. We love to burn. Um, and and so every couple of years on that, you know, using that, you use that clover as your green fire line, and you can easily burn that stuff um, every couple of years. And it, 
And, but you're only required for, you know, to do it for five years. But those stands are going to last a lot longer if you take care of them and, and do some management. Awesome. Yeah, it sounds kind of a, a lot like when you're trying to get switchgrass, like Cave and Rock switchgrass established. It's pretty, quote-unquote, needy, if you will, up front year one. But after that, um, you know, you kept the competition down, you end up being pretty successful. Does that sound any anywhere relevant? Yeah, it, yeah, because it it becomes more competitive as it gets larger. You know, as those wildflowers grow up, and, and I'll kind of give you this analogy. You'll, you'll laugh at me, but it, and it's one I've heard at a presentation. I don't, I don't even know who I can attribute it to, but when you talk about growing some of these wildflower plantings, you you often say it sleeps, creeps, and leaps. So year one, it sleeps. Year one, you're not going to see much. You're going to get rid of the weeds. You're going to try and take care of it as best you can. Year two, it's going to creep forward. You're going to see some blooms. You're going to see some things growing. Year three is when you see that leap. You're really going to see the the picture behind my head here. I mean, you're going to see everything's going to start blooming. You're really going to see growth in that planting in that third year. Um, Before that, with a wildflower kind of a four planting, you might not see too much. Um, the caveat there, I will tell you, Jared, um, some of these sites that are that I've seen by year two of these soybean sites, by year two they look like a three-year-old planting. Um, wow. They just really, um, they've been done very well, and the landowners have been really careful with them, and they've really, and they've got blooming plants in there that I don't usually see till the third or fourth year on these plots. But um, wow. and I, I just think having that, Seed to soil contact, that site prep really being right. And of course, I mean, there's Mother Nature to, you know, call out there. I mean, if it's a drought, you're going to have issues. If it's too rainy, you're going to have issues. But if it's a decent year and you've got good site prep, you, you should see some, some really spectacular results from a soybean prep site. That's awesome. That sounds great. Well, one last thing that I wanted to cover. Um, do you think us as small landowners doing these couple acre up to 25 acre parcels, if you will, uh, are we making a big difference by doing this overall? Uh, you know, like, what's your thought on that? Um, can I tell you another story? Am I allowed? I, I hate telling too many yeah. stories, but it's one of my right. favorite The mic is yours. Stories. And people will have heard it before because it's not my personal story. It's a little story about the little kid and the old man on the beach and the old man's walking down the beach and there's this little boy the little boy standing there in the surf getting his feet wet and he's surrounded by starfish they're everywhere they're like all different colors all different kinds the the beach the water's coming in and and they're all you know up above the level up, up above the tide level so they so they're all drying out and dying so he's walking over to these starfish and he's taking them he's throwing them in the water and, he, and he's doing it as fast as he can and he's and, and there's thousands of them. And the old man walks by and he goes, what are you doing? And he goes, the starfish. And he goes, kid, you're never going to make a difference. Look at, look around you. Look at them all. You'll never make a difference. And that little kid, he looks down, he picks up a starfish, flings it in the ocean. He goes, made a difference to that one. <laughs> and like and that's the thing. You know, yeah. we can't. I'm not, I'm not ever on, in my life going to be able to do 29 million acres of great habitat unless – you know, CRP changes a little bit, and maybe I will in my life have made a difference for 29 million acres. However, you know, you do what you can on your property. I mean, every little bit matters, and it does matter to wildlife. And 
and you'll see it. And you'll see the benefits on your own property. I love working with the landowner and coming back three or four years later and just seeing the, the difference on that place. Or the guy that you talked to and you never thought he was going to do anything, and he calls you back two or three years later and says, oh, I did exactly what you said, and it's just gorgeous and we love it. And it's like, dude, I didn't even think you were going to do anything. <laughs> There's no one anything. And I just love it. I mean, it, it does make a difference, it, and it makes a difference to wildlife locally. And with monarchs, I mean, those things migrate to Mexico. So, you know, we're talking about a species that you can make a difference all along that corridor to, to one monarch that's going to then have babies. And, I mean, you can make a huge difference in the population um, with with any little effort that you do. I mean, I, I do think you just make, you know, look at quail. You know, you can you can have a covey of quail on 20 acres if you if you intensively manage that. Um and they can they can population can re- rebound like four times um, in a year if it's a good nesting year. Um, you've seen it. I mean, you guys probably have to wait a little bit longer with deer for for you to see the results of your your deer management. Um, but with quail or, or upland birds that are you know so such tenuous of a of a life you know style and they don't last for very long you know and in the time it takes you know a quail to live and die you know you're never going to see that kind of difference in a buck that you're wanting to harvest but you know it does make a difference and every little bit you do I think makes a difference and it can uh, mean a lot in the lifespan of those species. Well said I think that is a a perfect uh, explanation on pretty much any habitat management philosophy that that we even talk about. You know, we relate it to our world and the, and the deer, but at the same time, every little bit you can do, every little inch of your property you can change or improve or manage, um, it all adds up eventually, and I think that was very well said, so I appreciate that. Well, I sure appreciate you guys having me on and talking about this, but I know it, you know, to some of your listeners, it might have been a little, um, I'll say it again, prayer. <laughs> prayer, prayer. But, you know, I, I'm an active hunter. I I, I, uh, I I am very, very interested in harvesting things. And I, I like to hunt in a lot of states. And, and um, But but I absolutely see the value in this kind of habitat. And, and, and a ton of the people I work with, whether they're hunters or not, um, are providing incredible habitat benefits by putting in some of these plots. And it's just great to see it happen on the landscape. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on. I think uh, – I think our listeners are going to be pleasantly surprised, if not, you know, just in awe about this episode and just opening everybody's eyes to another part of the world in terms of habitat management. So I want to thank you again. And one last time, where is the website or what's the website address where we can find you one more time? Okay, it's uh, beeandbutterflyfund.org, org, O-R-G. Awesome. Elsa, you've been great. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. It was really nice to meet you guys, Brian and Jared. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Elsa. We'll keep in touch. Yep. Elsa, thank you so much for coming on the show. I had a great time chatting with you. Uh, Brian and I both thank you. And, uh, you know, wish you good luck bird hunting this year. So for anybody who uh, wants to hear more from Elsa, you can find them online at beeandbutterflyfund.org. All right, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for all the great reviews you guys are leaving on iTunes and uh, on Facebook. Really appreciate that. We have a bunch more videos coming up on our YouTube. We're coming out with one or two every week at least. 
and uh, it's full swing habitat season now. So be sure to go on there, subscribe, follow along with us uh, more so than just the podcast, and it's a good place to do it. For everybody else, uh, check us out at habitatpodcast.com. We have uh, some great looking hats up there. We have all of our episodes. Gonna be launching a few blog articles up there soon. Have a few different topics we're gonna discuss and, and have some blog information on there. Uh, you know, different things about habitat management, hunting, etc. So that is habitatpodcast.com. I would like to thank Stony Creek Realty, Killer Food Plots, Packer Max, Huntwise, Five Two Outdoors, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, The Habitat Hook. Thank you all for your support in the show. We have special discounts with a lot of our sponsors, guys, so be sure to check them out on their websites as they help support us. All right, we'll be back with another episode for you soon. Take care, be safe, and uh, get out there and enjoy your woods. And uh, tune in next time as we become better habitat managers. Mm-hmm.